Do you think you know the timeline books? So you could do without a test then, right? You'd know it. If I were to do it, you'd ace it, right? Is that right? You guys, you're so noisy and loud when you want to be. If you studied for it, congratulations. We're going to move on. Just for the sake of time. Oh, don't applaud for that one. For the sake of time. When you're reading your Bible, you get to the prophets. I generally think you think very uh, simplistically about the breakdown because that's the way we've been taught to think. If we're ever going to break them into categories, we break them down this way. I guess if there's a quiz, here's your quiz. What would be the first prophet we encounter in our Bibles? And we call it the, the category of the prophets. We, it's a big book, 66 chapters. What is it? Isaiah. What comes next? Tell me. <laughs> Come on, guys. Jeremiah. What comes next? Lamentations, but that's a poetry book we said, but that's where it goes, right, in our Bibles. Ezekiel, what's next? Daniel, very good. And we call those major prophets, and that's it. Four major prophets with one poem. It's a lament about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the rest of them, this is where it gets hard. This is good. This will be your quiz for the night. We now hit the minor prophets, and we think through them simply just to try and memorize them from the time we were kids. We want to get them in order. What's the first one? Just shout it out. Hosea, what comes next? Joel, very good. Amos, what's next? Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's what we have. That's how you've learned them. That's what we call canonical order. That's the order in which they show up in our Bibles. We're not going to deal with them that way. We've already dealt with lamentations because it's part of the poetry, so let's take that out of our minds. We're not going to make a distinction between major and minor because all that means is that one has a lot more words in it than the others. So let's just think of them all equally in terms of importance and their messages. They have historical context. We want to think those through. So forget the fat books and the skinny books. We're going to start to say through our study, okay, there's categories that should tie these together in our mind. And we'll, we'll group them together, like Hosea and Amos, like Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum, and the rest of them, which all are categorized in a way that will find their way into this chart. Three different categories that I want to think through, with the middle category, I guess, broken into three parts, but we won't worry much about that tonight. So here's your chart. Now, last week we had this a little mixed up at the end, so we, we 86 the, the, the project and brought you to tonight. I've got dates down. That's what those numbers are. In the left-hand column, you see we go from the 9th century B.C. to the 5th century B.C. We're moving backwards in time. I haven't through this whole time given you B.C. in most references because we don't need it. We know we're we're before Christ. We want to categorize these and cover them this way. In the left-hand column, 760 and 750, right, 10 years apart, we're going to try to cover tonight Amos and Hosea. Now, that's not how you memorize them. You memorized Hosea, Joel, Amos. Old Joel snuck in between Hosea and Amos, and I'm not even going to take Hosea first. I'm going to take Amos first because Amos comes first chronologically in this category. And the category is Israel or the north or Ephraim is the 
northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and they're going to have a spokesman, a messenger, a prophet, which we dealt with at the close of our lecture last time. That prophet's got a message, not so much about telling the future. Don't think prophecy in terms of future telling. We talked about foretelling. We want to talk about forthtelling is what I said. Primarily, they've got a message for their generation. And so we're going to look at that to the northern tribes. And then we'll skip over to the foreign nations. We'll deal with those tonight as well. Obadiah in 845 BC, Jonah in 780, and Nahum in 650. Israel, two prophets to the north. When does Israel fall? What year? 721. Who do they fall to? Syrians. I bet we're going to hear a little bit about the Assyrians when we study Amos and Hosea. And I bet even when we talk about the foreign prophets, we're going to be dealing with Assyria, and we will. Why? Because it's so early. Obadiah and Nahum, much to say to Assyria, one before the fall of the north and one after. All the rest of the prophets are to the southern tribes. I categorize them here. You see them in red or on your worksheet there. You got that candy stripe box around the middle two, 605 and 593, because you know a key date that you were told to memorize is when the southern kingdom fell, the two tribes, the southern kingdom fell in what year? 586. So we know in 586 here, we've got a radical change in what's going on in Israel. Now, all of these, and we'll see this gets a little complicated when we know that some of these prophets had a large time span of ministry, but we're picking a time when they begin their ministries in the numbers that we lay out. So let's start at the beginning. We'll get these three categories to the, to the south, and we'll break these down into two sections in the following two Thursday nights. But we'll start with Joel in 830 BC. That's the first one we'll cover next week. And Isaiah comes next. That's a big book. He had a long period of ministry in four different settings. We'll look at that. Some of you took our class on Isaiah that Pastor Pete taught on Sunday morning, so you'll be ahead on that next week. Micah in 735, Zephaniah in 635, Jeremiah in 626, Of course, that's right up near the end. His ministry goes all the way to 586, of course, because he's lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. So he's into the exile and Habakkuk at the very end. He starts his ministry in 609. And of course, he is wondering how the Babylonians can be used as a tool against God's people, Israel. It's a great book. We'll look at that short book. Then we have two during the exile. We know for sure from our Sunday school stories that Daniel is one who is ministering during the exile because he gets hauled off by Nebuchadnezzar's men to Babylon with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have Ezekiel ministering in the land of Israel. He's among the commoners while Daniel's among the palace elite in Babylon. So we'll look at those on the last week that we studied together before Christmas. That's the plan at least. 520, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now those are great because they're in the right place in canonical order, in the right order. Fantastic. The rest of them didn't help us when we were kids to learn the books of the Bible or when you went through partners. It's not going to help us sort these out. If you could think this way, prophets to the north, prophets to the foreign countries, prophets in three basic categories to the south, pre-exilic before the fall of Jerusalem, exilic prophets during the exile, and post-exilic prophets, then you have sorted out the prophets accordingly. Now, I think a good test for us next week would be this chart here. So let's memorize that chart. You don't have to memorize the dates, but it'd be good for you to memorize 
those buckets, right? I should be able to put the chart up there, and you could just fill it, fill it in. I'll, I'll accept that challenge, Pastor Mike. I will do that. So let's start tonight with the northern prophets. Let's start with Amos. First in time to the north. Not our first prophet, our first prophet. We know, we learned on our chart, if you think, what's the earliest prophet? The writing prophet, Obadiah. But we're talking about the first prophet to the north, because we're going to take these categorically. General data about Amos. We know our date. It's up there above in the box, 760 B.C. Now, what's interesting about Amos is that he's actually from the south, a town that is south of Jerusalem, and he's called to minister and prophesy to the north. We'll look at that in a minute. There's nine chapters in the book, about 3,000 words in Hebrew. So it's a rather lengthy book. You think of minor prophets as maybe being, you know, one chapter, two chapters, three chapters. It's only one, one chapter Old Testament book, which we happen to study. We will study tonight. The times, the setting. This is an important king. You should remember this king. I gave you the list of kings there on the bottom right-hand corner of the north. Remember the north. We studied this on a chart that was all laid out next to the southern kings. But I just put this there for reference, and one that you should remember, very important, comes into play many times in our discussion tonight, is Jeroboam II. If you think about the split of the kingdom, you remember Jeroboam being the first king of the north. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's not Jeroboam that we're dealing with here. This is Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second reigned for 41 years. As Amos 1.1 tells us, it sets the setting and it gives you the southern king as well because that's always an important reference point because Chronicles does nothing but track the southern kings. So he says, concerning Israel in those days, he's a prophet with an oracle to bring to the northern kingdom, but he does it in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And we'll see this king, of course, you remember in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 6, the year that King Uzziah dies. Very prosperous time, by the way, in the southern kingdom under Uzziah. Long reign, 50 years. And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, not of Nebat, he was the one that split off when Rehoboam, remember, wanted to raise taxes and they were begging him for relief. So this is Jeroboam II. That's what we call him. He's not called that in the Bible. He's called Jeroboam, son of Joash. King of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And uh, we could talk more about that if we had time, but there is certainly evidence of a major earthquake in Israel in this time frame. It could help us actually date this. And the one archaeological site in Hazor, which is up north near Dan and Galilee, if you think about that, you know, that's in the northern kingdom, was a major 8th century earthquake by the way that the archaeological remains were left and the way they were tilted, unlike a overthrow from some army. Anyway, important earthquake. Jeroboam II. Let's learn some more things. Well, we'll get talk about the prophet because his message is so tied to the reign of Jeroboam. I should say a few things about Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. And in that time, that four-decade reign, much like Uzziah's long reign, and you can see because those go together, when you have stability, even in a church, a long-term pastor, when you have a long-term CEO in a company, you have long-term leadership in an ancient nation, that is a great time usually of stability. There's a sense of comfort. There's a sense of security. Uh, It was relatively prosperous. There was relative peace. It always leads, it seems, at least traditionally and generally, to a a time of, of, of prosperity. And that's not always good for the people of God. And we'll look at that when we talk about his message. But we're going to find him popping up a lot, Jeroboam II, as we study the prophets, in part because it was such a long reign 
and importantly as it relates to the spiritual lives of the people because it was a time of prosperity. The prophet said to be from a town called Tekoa. Tekoa, we have located uh, about 11, 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Notice how he describes himself. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, he's from Tekoa, and he mentions it again here, at least in terms of his job in Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. He says, I was no prophet, of course he is now, nor the son of a prophet, prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Now, usually if you're a herdsman, you're a herdsman, and if you're a farmer, a dresser of sycamore figs, that's what you are, one or the other. This even shows us that among the shepherds, he's not even a full-time year-round shepherd. He's doing uh, work for someone else's flock part-time and dealing with the sycamore figs uh, another part of the year. This gives us a sense of his socioeconomic strata. He's uh, low on the totem pole in terms of respect. Not only that, he didn't come from the school of the prophets. If you remember back to Samuel's day when he started this school of the prophets, he didn't come from that class of spiritual leaders. He wasn't looked up to in his pedigree. He didn't have any of those advantages. But that's why that contrastive conjunction is there. Didn't have what you would expect in the typical qualifications to be a spokesman for God. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. I just want to make this point, and you should every time you study the book of Amos, that God often picks the weak to shame the strong. Does that sound like 1 Corinthians chapter 1? There's always that sense that God, even with, we looked at Gideon's life, picking the weak to shame the strong, to win against the Midianites. And even when he collected his army, this ragtag team, God sent half of them away and then he cut them in half again and he kept making it smaller. And his excuse for doing that, or his reason, God doesn't make excuses, his reason for doing that was because he didn't want them to boast in them having done this out of their their own strength. And even in the message, he wants people to focus on the message and in this case, not the messenger. And it's so important that we realize God's great work through normal people. Sometimes he picks the brilliant, right? The Francis Schaeffers of life, the C.S. Lewis's of life. But a lot of times he picks people like D.L. Moody, who didn't have great diction or grammar. He wasn't a good writer. He wasn't much in terms of theological education or prowess, but he did amazing things for God. And as he used to say, because he was willing, and I think that's the thing. If we can have a heart, as he used to echo, uh, as was challenged to him, a man whose heart is fully devoted to the Lord, God can do great things through that person. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, even in that, not many are strong or noble. He does all of that so that we would not boast in ourselves. So if you think of Amos, I mean, one thing you need to remember is it comes from a common, common, commoner, even below a commoner, a guy who's got to have two jobs on his resume year round just to make ends meet. And God yanked him from that to be a person that we're still talking about here um, almost 3,000 years later. All right. The message. What's the message? message primarily, certainly in the first two chapters, is God is going to judge the nations, plural, for their sins. And that's how it starts. This is almost like the strategy of Nathan when he comes to David. Remember when Nathan comes to David about Bathsheba, he starts to kind of stoke the flames of justice in his heart to say, isn't it wrong if someone does this? Don't they deserve punishment? Well, Amos goes through, or God speaks through Amos, six different nations. And he says, look at these people. Look what they've done. They've done wrong. Uh, they need to be punished. And of course, all the people hearing this message can say, yeah, they do. God should get them. God should destroy them. And then in the next part of chapter 5, he briefly speaks of Judah. And if you've read this much of the book, 
If you've read two chapters of the book, you start to think, I don't even see how this is a message to Israel. Well, so far it's not, but we're moving in. And in and, and that constriction of, of thinking about justice, there's sinners, they need to be punished. There's nations, they need to be punished. Hey, your brothers down south, they've sinned and they, are, they need to be punished. They need, they need discipline. God is a just God and he should judge them for their sins. And then it comes in to sharp focus in chapters 3 through 6. You, Israel, need to be punished for your sins. And just like it says in Romans 2, it's so easy for us to identify the sins of others. That's why I warn you against the L-shaped amen when I'm preaching to you. And you know what that is. I've taught you that. When you are, my pastor used to say this, when you're saying to the preacher, yeah, preach that because this guy needs it. And when you want that sermon because you feel like that's a really good sermon about really bad sins and this is the person that needs to hear it and I hope that person is listening. And I understand there's some situations where you can't help but think that way. But the L-shaped amen is an easy thing for us to do, as Romans 2 says, because we can always easily identify the sins in others, but we are people who like to make excuses. And God wants us to realize that even our ability, our acumen to see sin in other people and that God should punish them that there should be some accountability and consequences should be a reminder to us that we are good at pointing out or we're good at deciphering and, and discerning sin and we should look that way at our own lives and use that same judgment on our own hearts. Well, that's what happens. The strategy for the first two chapters is to get them to that place. And then he gives them five visions of judgment. The middle of this book, chapters three through six, is all about judgment. Starting much like Jesus liked to say, and many, many times I chronicled it once in uh, Preaching That Changed His Lives in, in the section on Jesus' preaching, how often he used that verb hear, listen, akuo in Greek, listen, listen. And so it is in Hebrew here. You've got that like in the Shema back in Deuteronomy 6, that's the Hebrew word Shema, hear, O Israel, that here's the writer of, of Amos, Amos the prophet, saying, listen, hear, hear this, hear this, as all these visions go out of judgment. And there are five of them. Let's go through them. Number one, locust. And what's interesting about this first vision is that we've just talked about nations need to be punished for their sins. Oh, I can identify with that. Just like us thinking about ISIS or thinking about criminals or you know crime or drug lords or whatever. We haven't turned the page yet, by the way. We're still cramming it in because the chart was there for you. And judgment, locust. That now here they, they are convicted by Amos is preaching, we trust, that they deserve to have their entire food supply wiped out. And at that point, they're saying, you're right, we deserve that. Now, the amazing thing about Amos is after giving that vision, because God is a gracious God, and because Amos has a sense of, of, of being an intercessor, not only as a nabi or a spokesperson of, of God's message, he now stands in the gap and pleads like Moses did often for the people, and God says, but I'm not going to do it. You deserve that, but I'm, I'm not going to give you that. So the locust is just a reminder of what our sins deserve, but God is merciful. So even in this book of judgment, the first vision is one that is rescinded. The next vision is fire. Fire to destroy your cities. Fire to destroy your nation. And you could sit back after that conditioning about sin deserves consequences and punishment because God is just and he's holy and he should punish sin. And there should be fire. There should be payment. Our cities should burn. And yet, again... Amos stands in the gap, and because of the intercession of the prophet, God says, but I'm not going to do it. Grace, grace, and mercy. Vision number three was the vision of the plumb line. You know what the plumb line is. Figure out if something's straight. In the ancient world, of course, they use plumb line like I guess they still do today. And here was this picture of you being measured, much like uh, in Daniel there. You 
have not measured up. So again, we're thinking of the massive punishment that my sins deserve and then think about the details of how you fall short of judgment. We don't have the judgment articulated there. We've had two judgments articulated, but God relents from those. Third vision about a plumb line. The fourth vision about a basket of fruit, which is a Hebrew play on words because it speaks of ripe summer fruit. Now, commentators sometimes struggle with interpreting whether we're dealing with summer fruit as in the last of what you've eaten is the last of the crop. In other words, it's, it's as though your time is up, and some people would look at it that way. Some would work more on the play on words, which is not only the ripe summer fruit, but you're ripe for judgment. And, and so either way, you come to the same conclusion with the basket of fruit vision that this is the end for you. God has given you enough grace, and you haven't measured up, and there's going to be judgment. So really, the fifth vision is the ultimate vision that speaks to their destruction. Now, we don't have all the literary detail of the fall of the north like we have in the fall of the south because all the focus is on the, on the southern kingdom because through David's line, we're going to get the Messiah and we're going to have the salvation of the world, of people like you and me. But in the north, we also had these two rival places of worship set up, primarily in Samaria and up north in Dan, but you had these worship centers and, of course, you had pillars in the worship center and you had this vision of the destruction of those pillars. Specifically, the capitals on the pillars are going to be struck and it's all going to come toppling down. So in essence, this is really the one punishment after thinking of you starving to death and burning to death. He says, your worship center is going to be destroyed. And in fact, it was by the Assyrians sometime down the road. Now, God will judge the nations. God will judge Judah, your brothers. God will judge you for your sins. And then there's your visions of of judgment. Now, almost in the perfect pattern of all we see throughout the prophets, it ends with some bizarre statements when you're having a discussion with your disobedient nation about what they deserve and how they deserve a lot worse than what you're going to give them, but you're going to give them that because of their unrepentance and their sin. And now it ends with this hopeful note. Hey, I'm going to restore you. Look at some of the words here of the last chapter in, in Amos 9 up on the screen. In that day... Speaking of a day that's not specified in the future, I will raise up the booth of David. Now, you're talking to the northern tribes. Think about that. The booth of David from Judah in the southern tribes, yeah, I'm going to build up what's fallen because, you know, your brother's going to be destroyed eventually as well for their sin in this life. And I'm going to repair its breaches because it's been broken down. Certainly, there was no king after God's own heart the way David was. And I'm going to raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, what would the northern tribes think about that as they reminisce about David the king? Well, they would reminisce about the fact that's when we were one nation. That's when Ephraim and Judah were both united. That's when we had the northern tribes and the southern tribes under one leader. That was before the fiasco with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. give you a couple more verses from that last chapter. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities. You have just told me the pillars are going to be toppled, and they're going to inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. When you read the prophet speaking of that kind of restoration, you recognize, unlike what you can do with the southern prophecies, when you say, okay, there's an exile, and after 70 years they're going to come back and live in those homes. They're going to rebuild a temple. They're going to live there again, even though we never see that king. We only see the governors 
We see rulers, we see advisors, but we don't see the king. So in that sense, I guess you've got to kind of spiritualize those things, unless, of course, that's not the fulfillment God has in mind. And in the north, it was so messed up after the Assyrians came and attacked it in 721 that they said, well, those tribes were pretty much written them off. Now, I've told you they weren't written off in God's mind and they weren't even written off completely in people's genealogies because by the New Testament times, we could identify people from some northern tribes. They knew their tribes and certainly God hasn't written them off because in the book of Revelation, the 12 tribes are all named and people are going to be coming from those tribes. But to say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to put them back in their land. They're going to be rebuilding their cities. They're going to have vineyards that they're going to eat and, and drink the wine from. What is that all about? Well, that has to do with something that clearly we should understand. In every corresponding southern promise of restoration, God is not speaking of what's going to happen in some short-term post-Babylonian or Assyrian revival of, of the north or the south. We're talking about something that hasn't happened yet. To say, for instance, I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them. Have they returned to the land and be able to say they, they're, not, they're not going to be uprooted from it again? They're going to last till the end of time, to the end of the world? It's not, it's not happened yet. So these are comments and statements that if you understand the scripture and you read it normally, which I try to carefully read it normally, I'm stuck with this thing we call the millennial kingdom that's going to come when God is going to root his people in the land and they will live in that land and they will not be uprooted from that land until God replaces that land with a new land called the new earth and a new city called the new Jerusalem. These are promises that give them hope, but that hope was really far out on the horizon. Yes, God would get that generation, I suppose, if they trusted him and repented through the onslaught of the armies of the Assyrians, but... The promise in this text that was preserved for now, what, 2,700 years was a promise to remind us that God's not done with the people of Israel yet. He will plant them in their land, even the northern kingdom. I'm glad God preserved these for us and sent writing prophets to the north. And the second one that he did, and the only other one that we have specifically to the north, is Hosea. Let's look at the backside of this worksheet and think through Hosea. General data on Hosea. Now, you know the date because it's on our chart, 750 B.C. There are 14 chapters, just to give us a sense of how long this is. 14 chapters, about 3,600 words in Hebrew for what that's worth. I don't have much more to say about the general data of the book. The times. Again, you can imagine this because we've got a 41-year reign and you've got two prophets to the north only 10 years apart. There's a good chance they're going to still be in Jeroboam II's reign, and of course they are. Problem is, in 10 years and one decade, through the external veneer of prosperity, there was an increasing and continual spiritual decline in the nation. As a matter of fact, this was the worst that it had been in the north, as was often the case in the southern kingdom as well. Right before the destruction, it got as bad as it had been. And this is God's last warning before the destruction of the north. So Jeroboam II, a king that had relative peace, who had prosperity, had given people everything that they wanted, two camels in the driveway, and they were unfortunately compromised people. And how often do we see that? And that's the problem. We're praying often for the wrong things for our children and for our grandchildren and for the nation. Not that there's a absolute connection between suffering and godliness, but Jesus said it is really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we've got to think very carefully through 
what Jesus said and what we see as a pattern in Scripture, that oftentimes these times of extended prosperity were times of a cancerous growth beneath the, the veneer of these people's upstanding lives because they weren't upstanding. There was a lot of backroom idolatry going on, calf worship even in this particular time in the northern kingdom. And as I said, calf, calf worship, you think about how could they worship a golden calf, particularly the first one back there in at least the first one that the Israelites were engaged in back in Moses' day. How could they so quickly go from worshiping the invisible God to worshiping the golden calf? And I've told you this before, but let me remind you that the golden calf was simply a vehicle to worship the invisible God. It was a, what we call in missiology a syncretism, a, a blending of worldly religion with God's truth. And when that took place, they believed, much like you saw in Egypt where they had just come out of, that they had something to attach themselves to in some kind of visual sense to worship the God that rode on the back of the golden calf. And that was still going on here in the time of Hosea, particularly as we read Hosea in the worst form that had been in. The prosperity of Jeroboam II's reign and Uzziah's reign as well unfortunately led to a lot of spiritual compromise as we learn a lot and we will learn a lot in the first five chapters of Isaiah to the extent that we can get into it next time. Let's talk about the prophet. Nothing is known about the prophet outside the book, unfortunately. Only we would think that unlike Amos, he wasn't a southerner who went from south of Jerusalem to the north. He gives us a sense by his own writing that he's actually a local northerner. Now, if you think about that, the north was worse than the south. We had some good revival kings in the south, as I taught you, but we had no good kings in the north. They were all sinful, and you can only compare kings by that king is a lot more sinful than that sinful king. And so when it came to a bright spot, God would really have to work hard, at least from our human perspective, to find a prophet to speak. But of course, in his grace, he calls even Lot, as the New Testament says, from the darkest of places in Sodom and Gomorrah to guard him and keep him. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials, as that passage puts it, but the context is a sinful culture. And so Hosea, we understand in this particular story, is a local northerner. So many geographic terms, even more synonyms for the north than we've seen elsewhere. I jotted a few of them down. I know we've talked about this, but we'll see them everywhere in Hosea. Israel, they're going back to the original name of Israel, of the, of the whole nation, unified. Ephraim is used often. You need to remember, Ephraim was the most powerful tribe as you identified at this particular point in Israel's history in the north. And Samaria was often used for the whole nation. And of course, you would know, well, there is no Samaria nation, but Samaria, Samaria was a city. But because it was the central hub of worship and you had Samaria being the central hub and, and city of the temple worship in the north, the alternative temple, not the real temple in Jerusalem, it's often used as a synonym for the whole nation. Just like by New Testament time, when you run into someone who lives between Galilee and Judah, you called them a Samaritan because they were uh, of the region. And, and that was a moniker, a uh, label that they derived from the capital city and the worship center, Samaria, for what that's worth. Uh, he becomes a major part of the message. Now, hopefully you know some things about the book of Hosea. And if you've forgotten, let me remind you. He becomes a major part of the message, so let's talk about the message. The message is that Israel, at this particular point, is like a persistently unfaithful spouse. This is not just, oops, this was a chronic problem of incessant idolatry and taking the priority of the God who's supposed to be the center of their focus to be such a peripheral interest in their lives that it's like someone who has no time, no interest, no focus, no energy, no service, no work 
for the God that is their husband. That was the picture. Hosea chapter 1 engages Hosea the prophet in the story, in illustrating it, much like we've seen in our daily Bible reading with Ezekiel. So often he becomes a part of the story in in terms of illustrations and what he's supposed to do, where he's supposed to go, even what he's supposed to do in his family. Well, here we get the most extreme example of this in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God says to this prophet, a local northerner we assume God's called to speak through, go and take to yourself a wife of, I love the ESV here, whoredom, not a word you probably use this week, whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom, we get it three times in in this sentence, by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, of all people, uh, Gomer. To take a wife of prostitution in the northern kingdom in the 8th century BC was not hard to do. Again, like the golden calf, what happened was you often tried to, in many cases, have a, a, an end that would justify the means. So the means for them in Aaron's day was to build this calf so I can be a lot like the Egyptians and have the feel of Egypt in worshiping the God that I'm supposed to be following, the God of the Hebrews. Here you had, of course, in all the Canaanite practices, sex and, and licentious sex was always a part of this, just like it is today, only under different, different labels and different expressions. But there they said, well, we'll worship God, the God that we have created in our own minds, but we'll call it God, and it'll be an experience that we're trying to check a box of having some religious experience, but we'll do it through sexual licentiousness, through prostitution. So I know you know the phrase, but so often we see in the Bible the practice of temple prostitution temple prostitution primarily of females, but also through some historical instances through homosexual sex. Let's just make this much like uh, the pagan religions where we get to engage in uh, our fleshly passions and we'll do it in the name of, of religion. So you had plenty of temple prostitutes in the northern kingdom in the 8th century BC. So when he says, take a wife of, of whoredom and have children of whoredom, he's not saying his own children be children of whoredom because he's in this case, at least in Israel in the north, he's a respectable prophet at this time trying to speak for what's right and calling people to repentance. But he's taking children because, of course, birth control uh, for a prostitute in the 8th century BC is not all that it would be today. And so these prostitutes would often have several illegitimate children by the customers that they served in in the temple. So you've got a guy who's now told to take a wife who's a temple prostitute and to take to himself children that she's had that now are going to be his kids. So you're bringing home to your Jewish mother a, a prostitute and some illegitimate children to say, this is my new wife. Not what Hosea's mom was praying for, I assume. The shrine prostitutes. Which, by the way, if you want to find the beginning of this, you can go back to Genesis 38, our first reference to shrine prostitutes or temple prostitutes in the Old Testament. So... This quote-unquote good man is now linked in a covenant relationship that he makes before God with someone whose occupation was to have sex with men in their worship rituals and had children out of these encounters. And he's now supposed to take this flawed and very needy wife and to call her his own. That is the engagement of Hosea in his role as a prophet. And God says, I'm doing this so people can say, what are you doing, Hosea? And Hosea can now preach, I'm doing what God is doing, and that is putting up with you and all your consequences of your sin. He's going to make a point, I suppose, in that. 
But then the Bible says, you're going to have children with this prostitute, and you've got your own kids now that are going to come from this. So he says, children of prostitute, that's plural. I know that this woman that he takes got at least two kids. He's going to add three more to that mix that come from his loins, if you will, and they're all born, and God tells them to take these children and give them strange names. Right out of the gate, he, again, is a very living illustration of something God's wanting him to make this serious impression. And again, if you've read Ezekiel in our DVR recently, you've seen God doing this often, usually in smaller ways, building a city or lying on your side or bearing a belt or whatever. But now it's your lifestyle, it's your covenant, it's your marriage, and now it's your children and the names that you're calling them as you go and bring them to preach with you. Jezreel is the first one. Jezreel, which is a bit of a hard linguistic term, but probably means to scatter, uh, which is exactly what's going to happen in the end of the people of the north. They're going to be scattered in judgment, even though the promise of Amos was they're one day going to be reassembled under David's leadership, the house of, of David. And then you've got one called Lo Ruama. Lo in Hebrew is no, and Ruama is the word for mercy, no mercy. So I've got a kid that's called scattered, and I've got a kid that's called no mercy. They weren't in the baby name books, by the way, those two names in the 8th century B.C. God's not going to have any mercy on the people of Israel. And then uh, Ami in Hebrew is people. So lo Ami means no people or not my people. And in essence, you see this is the last warning to the northern tribes. He's now going to turn all of his attention, at least, so to speak, literarily in the Scripture, to the southern kingdom. The north is gone from biblical information, biblical history, until a couple references in the Luke narrative, a couple references in the New Testament, and the prophetic references in the book of Revelation. So, done. Not my people. At least not in any practical sense. And yet, all of these books, almost all these books, end with some kind of promise about they will be his people again one day. He will reassemble them one day. But for now, Hosea has been enlisted into the story with a prostitute wife, former prostitute wife, her kids that were illegitimate, and now three of your own kids with the strangest names in the city, in your town. Well, after all that, you think, okay, you've made this woman respectable, and that's fine. It's all going to be good now. Gomer ends up leaving Hosea with her five-plus kids. And when you ever see that, whenever you see that, and we see that still today, right? I mean, when you see a woman leave her husband and not fight for the kids and goes to live in Reno or Vegas or whatever she does, and we just think, wow, that poor guy. And Often that's true. I suppose there's cases where that's not the case. Uh, Wife's gone crazy or whatever. But in reality, you think of a mother's love for her kids not going to do that. Well, here goes this woman back to a life of prostitution. I mean, this is what happens to this woman. And the crazy thing about this story is that God's saying, I want to show my kind of love when everyone, by the way, is accusing God, as I heard this week again, someone ranting to me about God is so judgmental in the Old Testament, he's so mean. Here he is saying, I want to illustrate for you a little bit of the visceral reaction I have to my people turning on me and my great love, and even then I go after them. And he tells him in chapter 3, it's time for you to go out there again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which was part of the shrine prostitution and, and worship in the Old Testament in Israel. So he does. That was the command. First marry a woman with a checkered past and all these illegitimate children. Now go and buy her back. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechek of barley, which commentators and historians try and work that all out. We think that because 30 
shekels is 30 shekels pieces of silver are, is, is the normal or the historic in history slave price to buy a slave. And so this is him not even able to have the full amount. What this we assume it is, is you've got half of it in shekels and the other half in grain and, and goods. And you're buying this wife of yours back from a, not just a situation of being an adulteress, like you ran off with, you know, the accountant, but here's a woman who's actually purchased into another, probably ring of prostitution and has, uh, has to be purchased back. Here's the picture. God says, you've made your own bed. You've rebelled against me. But just like in the garden, when I've told you what to do and you haven't done it, I'm going to work hard to redeem you at great cost to myself. The picture of the gospel obviously is here. And it goes further throughout the book. Here's one great passage. And if you look at this, you see the indomitable love of God toward his rebellious people. He recalls Israel's past. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Of course, we remember that passage from the New Testament quotation in Matthew Two, Matthew 1 and 2, the story of that flight to Egypt. We'll look at that two, three weeks from now, Lord willing. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, right? Ephraim, again, the reference to the northern tribes. I took them up in their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. But I kept doing this. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I think the eye-opening reality of people in judgment will be how gracious and kind God has been to every rebellious sinner. So I... uh, atheist this week ranting on YouTube, and I thought about how gracious God is to everyone who mocks him and everyone who gives his energy and all of his mental acuity to try and defame the God who made him, the God who loves him, amazingly enough. And I think to look back, as this text says, we'll see that invisible hand of God providing an easing yoke times when people are sick or crying out for God to help them or even crying out just for fortune or whatever it might be if they don't believe in God. And God's saying, I've done all this for you, and you still you were obstinate and stubborn in your rebellion against me. That's the picture and the message of the book. And of course, it always underlies this, a call to repentance. One of the most poetic calls to repentance here is in the end of the book, in Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, my favorite verses from the book. Return, O Israel. There's that picture of repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. The things you're in occurring in your life is because you've sinned and take with you. Look at this great poetic way to put it. Take with you your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. I think too often we think we are done with our reparation or our repair of our relationship with God, even just in our daily walk with him when we feel bad, when we stop. I love this passage to remind me, God wants to hear from us. Take your words and return to God. Say to him, he wants you, as the New Testament says, to confess your sin. That's a statement of agreement, to agree with him. And if there's ever time for you to be praying out loud, it's when you're coming to God in repentance. Take your words with you, return to the Lord. Tell him to take your iniquity away. He's a gracious God and he loves to do that. And he was willing to do that to the northern tribes, but unfortunately it didn't end that way. They continued to rebel. But much like the rest of these prophetic books, there's always a promise of restoration almost uniformly a promise of restoration. Look at the end of this, Hosea 14, 7. They shall return and dwell beneath the sh- my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. I mean, like a, you know, a wife under the arm of a husband. I mean, you're going to be with me. We're going to be close. 
And you're going to flourish like the green. You're like a, like a field that's uh, well watered. They're going to blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. If you ask the question, when do the northern tribes attain to this place? You would say never. Hasn't happened. Certainly didn't happen just because they kind of found their way back, at least some of them, after the Assyrian assault. It didn't happen when Jesus came. They were still considered the Samaritans and even Jesus himself favoring the southern tribe to fulfill his promise to the southern tribe and not the intermarried Samaritans. When has the, when has the northern tribe had the reputation of fame and being in with God? It just hasn't happened yet. That's why when you read the prophets, you need to remember so many of these are specific promises, not just of some kind of, of, of short-term restoration, but long-term refer- restoration in the millennial kingdom, the message of restoration. Now, we've got foreign prophets. We've got three of them that we want to look at quickly tonight. Obadiah will be the first one on our list, and of course, from your chart, he's the top one and the first earliest writing prophet that we have among the prophets that we study, 16 prophets of the Old Testament. The general data, we need to know, of course, where he goes to, which we didn't identify on the chart, which would be good maybe to put on the chart now that we've identified it and written it down. He's sent to Edom. Who, is, who are the Edomites? Well, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. You remember in Genesis 25, Isaac has a barren wife, Rebekah, and he prays, and she conceives, and they have twins. And the twins are struggling. And Jacob, the heel grabber, and Esau, the red one, the one with red hair. Of course, Jacob becomes mama's boy, and Esau becomes the outdoorsman, one's preferred by Isaac once preferred by Rebekah. But Esau, that's the origins of the, of the nation. Of course, they were estranged and at odds with one another. They ended up settling south of the Dead Sea and became a quite expansive group of people. If you look at the map up here on the screen, you'll see how critical that piece of real estate was. I mean, if you were going to think about coming up, certainly from the desert, for instance, in the south, you're going to have to contend with the kingdom of Edom. And so that particular area right there in Israel, the southern border of Judah, was occupied by the Edomites, and the Edomites were not friendly toward the Israelites, as we'll remember back in Moses' day. Moses, of course, coming through that desert, wandering through the desert, wanted to make passage through Edom. And the way he addresses them in Numbers 20, verse 14, was, hey, he sent these messengers and said, hey, remind them that we're your brothers, your brother Israel. We've been through all this hardship in Egypt. You've settled out there. You've got land. You occupy it. Let us come. We've been harshly treated by the Egyptians. And I think Moses had every intention that the Edomites were going to be happy to let them pass through their land. And of course, Moses and Israel was not in any way back in the 15th century BC trying to exploit the land of the Edomites. But as you remember, they refused. You can't go through. We will attack you. And they begged. They asked again, no, let us pass through your land. We're not going to export you. We'll stay on the highway. We won't bother you. And they said no. And so that stuck in the prophetic file cabinet, if you will, of God, that the Edomites had an unresolved conflict with the people of God at one of the most trying times in Israel's history. And yet we didn't hear much about them for a hundred years, no, a hundred years, 400 years, we didn't hear much about what was going on in Edom, at least in the Bible. Well, by the middle monarchy, we had returning to the scene, the Edomites starting to pop up in the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. 
And there was a continued antagonism toward Israel. When I say Israel, I mean all of Israel, not just the southern kingdom or the tribe of Judah. I think I've got an example here for you of that. Not yet. I think we'll get to it in the message. 845 B.C. was our date, which we already printed for you on that chart. It is the shortest book in all of the Old Testament, 440 words in Hebrew. I don't know why I got into counting words today. I didn't do it like with my finger, but electronically. There are three books shorter. There are only four. No, there are five. Are there five one-chapter books? What are the shorter? Well, third John shorter, that's right. Jude is longer in Greek. I mean, you've got to count the Greek words, but not much. But that's the other one-chapter book. Philemon, very good. Second John. Second John, third John. It's in this order. Jude, Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John. I guess that's just for Bible trivia. I'm giving you those details. But those are the five one-chapter books in, in the Bible. There's four in the New Testament, Jude, Philemon, 2 3 John. There's one in the Old Testament, and that's this one, Obadiah. I count words rather than verses because some verses can be long in certain books and shorter in others. So it's one chapter, shortest book in all of the Old Testament. It's the earliest of the 16 writing prophets, as we've said already. The times. Some people debate the date of this, but it seems that Jeremiah, Amos, and Joel all give reference to this prophecy against Edom that seems tied so closely to what Obadiah wrote that this must have been familiar to them. And because of that, it makes sense that this is the early date that I settle on and agree with, 845 BC. It references an attack of Edom on Jerusalem. That's what I wanted to reference that um, King Jehoram and the attack by the Edomites. We'll see this often. Well, here's the reference I wanted to give you. 2 Kings 8, 28 through 22. And Obadiah, of course, it's only one chapter, verses 10 through 14. The reference there to the historical attack on Jerusalem and 2 Kings 8 is the reference to the Edomites' attack and conflict with Jerusalem and King Jehoram. And as we'll often see, God is going to punish them for doing something that God allowed to be done as an act of his punishment on his people. In other words, much like Habakkuk, Habakkuk is mad, and it seems like we're mad too when God is punishing people for doing what God had designed them to do. God had designed Babylon to be the the arm by which the southern tribes were punished, and yet he turns around and punishes Babylon for that. And, And that's part of the sovereignty of God, and we've dealt with that in other messages, but it's important for us to see how God is a just God in responding to the sins of individuals. Just like you might look at your kids one kid doing something wrong and another kid because of that wrong and that context ends up hurting the other kid and you go, well, that's what he deserves and he sure earned that and yet the other kid did something in that situation that you have to reckon in his life too. That kind of situation, having two boys, I certainly had to do that many times in their childhood. And the one ends up being an arm of sowing and reaping and judgment and God had certainly done that in this case with Edom. With the exception maybe of Moses, when you think of that, providentially, I assume, we look at that thinking, no, that's not right. Edom should have let the Israelites through under Moses. But in this case, God uses Edom to attack Jerusalem because of Jehoram's evil, and yet now he's going to say in verses 10 through 14 in Obadiah, you're going to get punished for your evil and cruelty to Israel. The prophet, very common name in the Old Testament, Abad, translated here, Oba, is the Hebrew word for uh, servant or to serve, the verb to serve in the noun form. Yah at the end, every time you see that ending with an A-H at the end, sometimes an E-H at the end, it's a 
abbreviation for Yahweh. So this is a servant of Yahweh, very common name. There are 12 other people in the Old Testament with the name Obadiah. If you have a good Bible dictionary, you'll get a name like that, and you'll see one, this guy, two, that guy, three, that guy. And sometimes we're looking to see which one of these is, is he, and though some have made some suggestions, really none of them correspond to this prophet, the time frame, the place, the background. So this is just the 13th guy named Obadiah in the Bible. And since he gives no biographical information like we had with Amos, and we can get from other people like Jonah outside of his book and other books, we're stuck not knowing much about this man, Obadiah, who was sent to Edom. No biographical information given. His message, Edom's going to be judged. Edom will be judged because they deserve to be judged because they've done evil against Israel, not only way back when in another generation when Moses was traveling through, but recently in the attack upon Jerusalem, and it's not right, and you should have done it, and you did it with a bad heart, and now you sit back, as often we see in people's lives, thinking, I can do whatever I want, like the thugs we see on the news. I watched the news this morning, saw some thugs beating people up, and they walk around all prideful like they have every right to do whatever they want to do. And they had a, and this is very much an underlying part of this very short book, a prideful confidence uh, in their own being impervious to any kind of, of judgment. They were the big kid on the block, the strongest kid on the block, and so they had a confidence in themselves, very prideful, and God says that's foolish. Verse 3, for instance, says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You're kind of relying on, on something you're, you're foolish to rely upon. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Well, they knew one of the reasons we can't fear the Israelite repercussions or Judah's repercussions, or anybody's repercussions, is because we have a absolutely perfect fortress that we live in because we've built our city and our nation, the hub of our city, into the rock. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. And though archaeologists will often debate which part of this remains, which part of the remains of this city is dating back to this time, and you'll see people saying it only goes back to the 5th century or whatever, we know from this book, Obadiah, that the building of buildings and fortresses into the rocks all went all the way back to the 9th century B.C. So we know it was going on all the way back to there. Now, if you can say, well, this, these dwellings were from that particular time, that's where archaeologists may disagree with you. But this was the common architecture in this particular part of Edom, which is south and southeast of the Dead Sea. I know you know some of the structures you've seen. You've seen that structure before, have you not? And the city today, we call it Petra, and I know it was, you've seen it because you've seen this movie with this guy riding around in front of it. And you remember that scene, which I think is at the end of the movie. This is some tourists going through there. But, I mean, this is one of the reasons they weren't afraid. You want to talk about building fortresses to keep people out, which is, of course, what you had to do when you had these people coming to assault your city, uh, building ramparts and all the rest. When you have natural defenses like this, and you could only get one horse or two horses at the most at a time through the narrow passageway into the hub of your, your city. That, that's a strong defense. And so they thought, what are you going to do? I live in a tank. You're not going to come and hurt me. And that's the kind of foolishness they had because they only looked at the arm of man, not the arm of God, and God could do whatever he wanted to do. And he said, in your pride, you've thought no one's going to take you down, but I will. You can go visit this. How many of you have been to Petra today? Anybody been there and seen that? Yeah, we've got a church not, well, it's kind of far from there, but in Jordan, modern-day Jordan. The message, well, God and his people are going to rule over this land. You're going to be punished, and one day this land will be 
Israel's. What? Again, when you see promises like that in a short little book of Obadiah, you think, when, is, when does that happen? Not happening now. Not didn't happen in the Old Testament. Certainly didn't happen after the 8th century, 9th century B.C. And yet this is the promise. Look at statements like this. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Mount Esau is the synonym in this book for Edom. It's called Edom. It's called Mount Esau. Of course, Esau, again, the origins of the nation of Edom. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is going to be the Lord's, which is the God of Israel. And saviors are going to go up, princes, leaders, people that are going to deliver, and it's going to be Israel's property. Again, look through the prophets, take these statements seriously. This doesn't in any way seem to be hyperbole, especially when Jesus comes on the scene and starts talking about issues of the tenses of verbs or the plurality of nouns. And then he says, not a jot or a tittle or a seraph or a yoth, to be more specific, shall depart from the law until it's all all fulfilled. You're stuck with passages like this saying, when did that happen? And unless you want to be a spiritualizer of the text, you're, you're really stuck thinking one day that property and that place won't be under the kingdom of Jordan it will be uh, led by the princes of Mount Zion, which, of course, is Israel, Jerusalem. Got another guy you're familiar with here, Jonah, I'll bet, foreign prophet. General data for the book, he was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh, by the way, is one of the oldest cities ever, ever, ever. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Remember, we got the flood in chapters 6 through 9. Everything kind of resets at that point. Some murky things in terms of chronology and geography before the flood, but after the flood, things settle and normalize, and we look back, and we start to, we see Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and we see the proliferation of the world again, and propagating of people, and be fruitful and multiply again is the command, and off they go. We get the table of nations there in Genesis 10. Well, in verse 8, and finishing up in verse 11, it says, Cush, which of course is the grandson of Noah, the son of Ham, fathered a guy named Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. Now, it speaks about him being a hunter and all the rest, but it's the, I mean, there's so many, quote-unquote, mighty men, Napoleon, Alexander the Great. You've got all these great leaders. Well, this is the first one in terms of the the kind of person that goes and establishes a, a kingdom, if you will. And from that land, he went to Assyria, which is the land between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Euphrates and Tigris, I guess, in your way. Euphrates and Tigris River. And he built the city Nineveh. So Nineveh goes back all the way to Genesis 10, which is two generations from Noah. So this is an old city, is what I'm trying to say. And of course, it is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Even back in Genesis 10, we start to have the seeds of the Assyrian kingdom, and we have the city or the capital being Nineveh. To give you the reference here, instead of just my arms waving on the stage, you can get a sense of where that is if you look to... Wow, that seems really washed out, doesn't it? But you see Jordan River, at least, on the line. You see that? You can't see the Jordan River on that unless it's my color blindness acting up again. But it's really tiny down there above Ashdod, the word Ashdod. You've got to go all the way up and around, which was the traveling ark, by the way, where you came from. But Nineveh up there. Now, you've got some concentric circles, and I'll give you some more information on that a little bit later. But there's Nineveh between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Actually, it's on the bank of the Tigris. Today, if you know your modern geography, right across the river from that is Mosul, which is in the news all the time in Iraq. And that's right across from where ancient Nineveh is. Not a great place to vacation right now. When was it written? 780 
B.C. is the date we give to Jonah. He was sent, interestingly enough, from the northern kingdom of Israel. If you've been to Israel, the first night you get there, when you fly into Tel Aviv, a lot of times we stay that first night in uh, Joppa. and You take a walk to the old city of Joppa, trying to stay awake so you can get your body acclimated, if you remember your trips to Israel. And um, that's the port, as you'll remember, that he leaves on, trying to run from God. It's four chapters long, (laughs) about a thousand words in Hebrew, if you want to know that. The Times. Guess what? It's also during the reign of Jeroboam II. 780, that makes perfect sense. Where's our little chart? 780, Jeroboam II. Well, it fits right there between 793 and 753, Jeroboam II. What do we have in Jeroboam II's reign? Prosperity, peace. We've got people thinking everything's good, and yet there's a moral laxity, even among the prophets here that are being called by God. Here's a prophet now that is sent there to do God's word, and he becomes the most obstinate person in the book. And so spiritually, things aren't very good. Relative peace and prosperity, and yet spiritual decline. So that's just the same song, third verse. Jeroboam II's reign is not good spiritually. Now, Assyria, by the way, is between strong leaders. Now, again, it just gets to be fancy words right now, unless you know a little bit of Assyrian history. But there should be some names you remember. Shalmaneser third and Tiglath-Pileser third. Those two kings are very strong. Matter of fact, Shalmaneser third inherits a killing machine from his father, and he goes on a conquering spree, and he expands the kingdom. Well, then Shalmaneser IV comes, which this is the king between those two strong kings, and the kingdom atrophies to almost nothing. And then Tiglath-Pileser comes along in 745 and expands it. Now, he's ramping up to the conquering of the northern tribes. He's not the one who does it. Remember, Sennacherib comes along later, but nevertheless. All I need to tell you is that when it comes to this particular time, they seem ripe for repentance, even though they're sinful and they're bad, and clearly they're sent, God sends them there to give him the message they're going to be destroyed. But some would argue they're cautious because they're on the defense. They're shrinking. Their borders are shrinking. And some would even say that the, and there's debate about this, but the June 24th, 791 eclipse that took place there in the summer of 791, that's 11 years before Jonah arrives, that there was a lot made in the history of Assyria over that eclipse that something, that was an omen of something bad. So some thought they were skittish at this point, not to mention other plagues that had happened in the land of Assyria at that time and the defeats that they had. And now they had a weak king and there was this sense of, oh, so here's a bad nation that's not being prosperous like Jeroboam II, and they seem to be right for someone to come in and say, you guys are sinners, even though all Jonah sent to say is, you're going to be destroyed. And yet, that's what happened. Anyway, oh, I want to give you the graphic of that. Yeah, it didn't really come out, did it? This one's better. I guess it's my angle here, but do you see that little circle? Is it green? <laughs> I shouldn't be talking colors, but the small circle around Nineveh and Asher, do you see that? That's where we were in the time of Jonah in terms of the, the influence and the borders, if you will, of the Assyrian kingdom. And I think I, I pulled this out of some reference work. That, it says the greatly reduced ter- territory there, that's Shalmaneser IV. That's who was on the throne at that particular time, time of Jonah. The Shalmaneser III, what color is that, yellow? No, something else, orange? Okay. The one above it is Shalmaneser III? Snack rib at the bottom is the biggest, right? Because he was the strongest all the way down into Israel at that point. 
Anyway, I'm just trying to show you. You had a time when things were not good in Assyria. They still had power. They still were a strong world power, but they weren't what they were. And Jonah comes along, and this prophet, of course, we know a lot about because the book is a story of the prophet, which is unique. We call it a prophetic book, and it's in the prophetic books, and the Hebrews have always collected it in the books of the prophets. They've had it in the... They were the ones who first did the minor prophets. Matter of fact, they read the 12 minor prophets as one book oftentimes. I mean, they saw it that way. It wasn't, obviously, and they knew the distinctions. But it's collected as a prophet, but think about it. It is not a record of prophecy. The book of Jonah is a record of the story of Jonah's life and what goes on when he tries to go give prophecy, but it's not like all the other prophetic books. As a matter of fact, there's only one sentence of prophecy in the book. Think about that. One sentence. What is it? Here it is, Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go to the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the one prophetic statement in the book. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not, by the way, repent. It's not a crusade of, you know, Billy Graham crusade or, you know, Greg Laurie crusade. This is just, you're going to be destroyed by God, and you get forty days' warning. But that's the one sentence. So we know a lot about him, and he ends up being a great Sunday school character for our children and for us because it's a story of his life. Now, he's a reluctant prophet. You know that. God tells him to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go. He goes to Joppa, and he tries to you know, head to Tarshish, and he is trying to run. But he's not the reluctant prophet like we see other reluctant prophets in the Bible. Moses was a reluctant prophet, right? Go talk to Pharaoh. And he said, no, why? What was his reason? I'm not a good talker. Not going to listen to me. Not only was he demoralized from the first part of his life, now he's thinking, I can't speak clearly. You got Jeremiah. He's a reluctant prophet. Why? Well, I'm young. Why are they going to listen to me? You got reluctant leaders like Gideon. Why? I'm weak. I don't know how to, I don't know how to fight. He's a reluctant prophet for different reasons. He didn't like the audience. Now, sometimes you had people who didn't like the audience, and they loved preaching against that audience they didn't like, but he didn't like the audience because he feared God's mercy. Why would God send me to this nation? They seem to be in the decline. They seem to be ratcheting back. Maybe he even heard that they were skittish and scared and not sure what they were doing. And he feared God was sending a messenger there maybe because he, would go, he was going to be merciful. That's what he says in the end of the book, right? In chapter 4, I knew you were going to do this when he forgives him. So, as I said at the outset, Jonah begins, becomes the most stubborn character in the book. The people of Nineveh are responsive. The sailors in the beginning of the book, they're responsive to the will of God and the knowledge of God, and they want to do what's right. The Ninevites end up wanting to do what's right. The only guy that doesn't want to do what's right in the book is Jonah, which doesn't speak well for how things were going spiritually among the preachers of the era. What's the message? Well, you heard it. Forty days, you're going to be overthrown. To the Ninevites, he said, you've earned God's justice. Not even a call to repentance. It's just a judgment is coming on you. And God is so gracious, he's going to give you a 40-day warning. To the readers, what's the message? Well, to the Ninevites, it's God, you've earned God's justice. To the readers, it's God is merciful. How do we see that? Well, we see it because we see God being merciful to the Assyrians. They're foreigners. They have attacked the people of God. They've been a harassment to many people around the world. But God ends up being gracious to them. And to Jonah, one of my favorite passages in the book of Jonah is Jonah 3, 1, and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Well, that's how the book started. And he said, no, I don't want to do it. Well, after his little detour there, God says, let's try that again. And I just love that about God because, again, like the human race, he could have tossed them in the trash and said, forget it. 
And he could have with Jonah said, well, I'll look for someone else if you're not going to do it. But God says tenaciously and compassionately, let's try that again, Jonah. And God is gracious. He's merciful. The message to the Ninevites, you've earned justice. The message to us when we read the book, God's merciful. Look how merciful he is to the Assyrians and to Jonah. To Jonah, what's the message? To Jonah, the message is you want grace for yourself. That's what you want. How do we see that? We see that in chapter 2, in the song that he sings. He is now in peril for his life. He thinks he's going to drown, and he wants grace. And he sings, and he's grateful, and he commits his vow to God. And the plant, the story of the plant, he wants grace. He wants that plant to grow up and give him shade. And when it goes away, he doesn't say, well, you know what, you're right. I didn't build it. I didn't have anything to do with it. I guess, you know, I'm just out here. I didn't bring an umbrella. So, no, he's mad that he doesn't have it. He demands the the gifts of God. Nahum, in three minutes. General data. He goes to Nineveh also. He does so in 650 B.C. That's 130 years after Jonah. If you want to think about 130 years ago, what's that? 1880s. Grover Cleveland was the president. Helen Keller was a kid. D.L. Moody was founding Moody Bible Institute. I don't know how connected you feel to 130 years ago, but God had come, given a message of judgment. They repented. He relented. They had given, been given the grace of God and the message of grace, and now it's been 130 years. Three-chapter book. The times, north had fallen to, Assyrian, to the Assyrians in 721. If you think about the time frame, we had 780, Jonah goes, 650, Nahum goes to the same city, and in between that time, they had come and conquered the land of, of Ephraim or Israel, Jacob. Ashurbanipal was king. If you want to go from a weak king, we had Tiglath-Pileser, you have Ashurbanipal right now, which I bring him up because he's somewhat famous. Here's a uh, and he, I'll prove to you it's not just in museums, although this is in the Louvre Museum. This is a picture of him on his chariot. Here's another relief of him fighting lions. I mean, you're talking about a strong leader. This was the Alexander the Great of Assyria. Here he is shooting arrows from his, his chariot. Here he is, by the way, believe it or not, it's the only statue that I know of, at least a modern statue in a modern place. It's not in a museum. All of them are reliefs and rocks of Ashurbanipal in San Francisco in front of the public library. 15-foot-tall statue depicting the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. Why is he there? Because one of the things he was known for in antiquity was building the great library of Nineveh. It was a time of prosperity and great strength. So much had happened with his predecessors that this was a power... It was much like Petra at this time. They were so on it at this particular time. They thought nothing could take them down. So when I say Ashurbanipal was king, not only was he doing great things for their culture in terms of building these great libraries, he was the powerhouse, he was strong, he was known as the you know, lion killer, he was the, the great leader of the nation and everyone had his respect. But God was going to keep his Abrahamic covenant, which was he's going to curse those who dishonor you. Now, he, they had just come through the destruction of the ten tribes of the north. And so God was going to say, though this was all part of my plan to punish them for their idolatry, we are going to settle the score here, and you're going to have to pay as a nation, not only for Israel, but for so many other things. The prophet, Nahum chapter 1, says is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Elkosh? What in the world is Elkosh? And if you go in an atlas and try and find Elkosh, let me know what you find. You're not going to find much, but I think you may know where he's from, and it's a good guess. People think he's from Galilee. Where in Galilee? Oh, a little town called Capernaum. Capernaum? Capernaum. It's the town of Jesus. Here's the picture I took when I was there a long time ago. Next to it was this sign. No dogs, no cigarettes, no guns, and no short clothing. I don't know why I just added that, but you'll find interesting interesting uh, signs when you go there. Capernaum. 
Kafr, by the way, in Hebrew is village. Nahum is Nahum. This is the village of Nahum. Now, it became known as the village of Nahum, but I think this was Elkosh. So he was from the northern tribes, is all I'm trying to say, living at least up north in Galilee after the fall of the northern tribes. His message, God is just, and it's filled with statements of his justice. Matter of fact, you should read Nahum chapter 1 tonight. It is filled with statements like, oh, God is jealous. He's avenging God. He's avenging and he's wrathful. The Lord God takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And people think, well, this is the terrible God of justice. Well, you know what? Keep reading. Yes, it's all about his indignation, his just measured wrath. But after saying things like that, his wrath is poured out like fire and rocks broken into pieces, you have the responses to that like the Lord is good. I mean, this is the next verse, verse 7. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge. All he's looking is for people to take refuge in him. Turn from your sin. You can either be the object of my just punishment or I'll be your protector, your stronghold. I'll be your Petra. I'll, I'll protect you. I'll be your ally. Oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. I don't have time to read you this, but Hebrews chapter 12 says, man, if he was that way in the Old Testament, how much more should he have that kind of indignation now for those who reject his son? And by the way, you can go to him as a stronghold. If you do and you receive that kingdom, you ought to be grateful and you ought to worship him as a consuming fire. Same, same references as Nahum chapter 1. Nineveh will be judged. Nahum chapter 2 says that. Coming against Nahum, he gives this prophecy in 650 B.C. Ashurbanipal, the great king, great in terms of power. He dies in 627 and Nineveh is destroyed in uh, 612. 38 years after Nahum's prophecy, it all comes true. It's all downhill after Ashurbanipal, by the way. He was the last great king of the Assyrians. It ends with a reminder that God's just judgments are just. He always responds justly. And I just thought I'd do this dramatically in the last statement here, one of the last statements in the book, uh, in Nahum chapter 3. He says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. God will lift up your skirts over your face. I gave you this reference in a sermon not long ago. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. The point is this. Sin is something that's there and it's real, but we just deny it and we cover it. God is only responding to the reality of who we are. And all the atheists that are yelling at me on YouTube or whatever, the the reality is there. You just don't want to see it. You want to cover that. You want to think you're perfect and acceptable. You're mad at a God who wants to judge sin because you want to define sin your way. But to, to see it God's way, God is simply responding to the realities that we're working hard to cover up. Our point of reference is all wrong. I wish I had more time for that. But again, God is a gracious stronghold. He says in Revelation chapter 3, for instance, hey, I will sell you those, those garments to cover your nakedness. I'll take care of the problem. God just wants us to admit the problem. That's so much of what the prophets are all about. So we've covered Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum. Next time we'll get to at least the first half of those, Lord willing. We'll end with those. Then we'll have Christmas. And then we'll do something else on Thursday nights for a while. Let's pray. God, thanks for this crew. Thanks for our real quick survey through these prophets, these five prophets tonight. Let them be helpful remind us of your justice and your mercy, your indignation and your grace, your seriousness about sin and your seriousness about forgiveness and mercy. We want to cling to that and we want to worship you as we receive that forgiveness with reverence and awe, remembering that our God is a consuming fire. Help us not to fall to this relativistic view of you because of the voices clamoring today to ignore what is obvious to you and should be obvious to us if we were willing to look at ourselves through the lens of your truth, comparing our lives to your purity. Help us to realize how sick we are, morally speaking, and then our need for you and how gracious you are to provide all that we need to make our lives fully acceptable in your sight through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.